0: that's what i'm talking about wait okay
1: now from the beginning welcome to bs beyond stereotypes a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world
0: for me the point was that in the workplace we should all be able to express what makes us unique and diverse and nobody should have to put their hair a certain way or change their outfits or hide certain things about themselves. And when we all bring our unique selves to the workplace, our teams are much richer and we thrive and, and we perform better. If we are all um, able to, to be ourselves at work, we shouldn't have to put that in a corner when we go to work or, or close it inside of a box when we go to work. And so that was the point. And, and, and I hope it, that, that it has made an impact.
1: Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Ellie Albrecht, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hi, Ellie. How are you doing?
0: Hi, Merle. I am doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on and thank you for all all the work you do on diversity and helping people be their better selves in the in in this crazy legal industry, um, and uh, I particularly enjoy your your podcast and your prior your prior uh, episodes.
1: Well, good. I'm glad, um, and I'm so excited. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, I love it when I just kind of. Like, cold, reach out to people because I think they're interesting. And that's what I did with you. Before we get started, I'm gonna just give people a little bit of background and you can fill in if you want, or you can say, you know, that's enough. Stop, stop, that's enough. But um, uh, just wanted to let people know that um, Ellie is in DC, um, that you are uh, a practicing uh, attorney in the corporate group at Gibson Dunn. Um, you specialize in mergers and acquisitions um, and apparently love it. I did that for a while and, and didn't, but I, but I get it. Um, you went to Georgetown, got, received your JD at Georgetown. Um, and uh, obviously you went to undergrad, And but it was also very interesting that you served in the Israeli, uh, army service for three years. Did I, did I miss anything?
0: No, I think you hit everything. Uh, I just, just important parts of me, uh, I would add are that I am married to an absolutely amazing woman, uh, Shai Albrecht, who, um, has given me three amazing children, uh, one boy and two girls. And We've recently grown our family with a little flock of uh, hens, which lay eggs for us. And we have one rooster, which wakes us up in the morning. <laughs> I uh, love it. So that's, our, that's our life.
1: That, I love it. And also, you know, you live uh, in the, Cher- the foothills of the Shenandoah Mountains.
0: Yeah, we live out in Western Maryland, which is where we're in the Shenandoah Mountain Range, uh, the Catoctin Mountains out near Camp David. Uh, We moved out here. So about an hour from D.C., an hour from my office, uh, we moved out here almost two years ago, uh, just seeking peace and quiet. And uh, that's what we got. So we have we have a bunch of acres and we see the stars at night. And when I go out of my house, it's perfectly quiet unless my kids are yelling. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, it's a lovely place to live.
1: That is amazing. Now, did you do that as a result of the pandemic or had you already planned on doing it? It's a really good question. We, uh, we, uh, we started about, we were in Baltimore. Uh,
0: and so we started looking for something along these lines in the you know, Baltimore area. Um, we're Jewish, so we're part of the, or Orthodox Jewish, so we're part of the Jewish community and we were, we were living there in Baltimore. And uh, so we were looking for for a long, long time for a house that fit our needs within the the kind of city suburbs confines and there was nothing. And then COVID hit and we started to realize that our social life and interacting with other people face to face was not quite as important as we had Mm -hmm. always thought. And mm-hmm. so we thought to ourselves, you know what, we could move out into the middle of nowhere and still live a, a fulfilling life and, you know, live an even more fulfilling life. And um, so that's what we did. So that was right at the beginning of, of COVID.
1: Okay. And yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned you for, yeah, we both uh, uh, did, didn't uh, mention your Jewish faith and, and that has a lot to do with how I found you and, and why I wanted to, to talk to you. And I, I'm just wondering you know, during, um, during, during the pandemic, not being able to be as, you know, commun- with your community, how, how has that been?
0: Yeah, Merle, that's an, a very good question and a very perceptive question because you probably know that Orthodox Jews live in relatively tight-knit communities, and that's a mystery to most people why they do that. But in reality, it revolves around Shabbat observance. Uh, We don't drive cars on the Sabbath on, on Saturday, which is, you know, and and which is the day of rest. And so we, we do generally attend synagogue, which by, uh, by implication means that we need to walk to synagogue. So as a result, all uh, observant Jews all need to live within, you know, say a mile, unless they're extra, extra athletic and they can walk even (laughs) further. Um, there's also some conceptions of, of a boundary line, uh, that you can walk and uh, go on the Sabbath. So, uh, so those kind of factors combined makes it so that Orthodox Jews live in, in, very close proximity to each other. And that's, that's the way I have always lived. That's the way my wife was raised living in these, um, predominantly Orthodox communities. And so, it, it was a very, it was a, it was a full paradigm shift to move outside of one of these communities. And we, we now are the only Orthodox Jews in, in uh, I don't know, the, the whole little town, maybe the county, where we may be the only family in this county and uh, the only Orthodox. And that's been a challenge in some ways because we have, uh, we have had to kind of chart our own path but in other ways, it's given us the opportunity to engage directly with our kids to teach them Judaism, mm. uh, to teach them um, the the values that we want to um, impart to them.
1: I love that. I, I I love it. And yeah, I'm I because I live in Los Angeles. I I'm in um, uh, I I'm probably a little more cognizant of of uh, Orthodox Judaism in, in terms of communities and where, where they are and, you know, the Sabbath and, and all that, uh, than some people maybe um, maybe not. Um, so, okay. I always ask people about their upbringing and their family and, you know, what their parents, if you're willing to talk about it, you know, how your family and your upbringing has, uh, uh, Really formed you to be who you are and what you're doing now. Do you do you feel comfortable talking about that?
0: Yeah, sure, sure. That's that's an interesting question, uh, and and a very wide ranging question because uh, we're so formed by our upbringing. Um, so I uh, I was you know born to to uh, Orthodox Jewish parents. Uh, they were. Both uh, school teachers at one time. My mom um, ended up being a stay-at-home mom at, at one point. My dad, um, my dad was a kindergarten teacher for I don't know, like a hundred years <laughs> until he just retired <laughs> very recently. Um, and uh, raised with two brothers. I'm the middle child, uh, so um, you know I was uh, educated by my older brother, as only an older brother can do, and. Uh, so we grew up in LA, and then uh, when I was eight, we moved to Wisconsin. Um, mm. My parents were not seeking a uh, rural life. We moved to Milwaukee, you know, very inner city Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, they were just seeking like a lower cost of living, um, less pressure uh, than LA. And and then I, I was in Milwaukee until uh, I turned sixteen, and I I was went to a high school. That uh, that was, I, I would categorize it as a fairly rough um, public high school. Um, I was spending more time outside of the classroom than I was in, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and at that point, um, it was you know my freshman year of high school uh, was nine 11 and that impacted me deeply. And that uh, I started to um, started to think, as a lot of people my age who went through that experience, started to think about the military as a viable. Um, option and as as a way to contribute Um, and then as I started to move my way through high school uh, I started to connect with my grandmother and her story and my my grandmother was um, from a very prominent German Jewish family uh, in in a little town called Stuttgart which is uh, in Germany near the French border
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and, and they were they owned factories and uh, they were manufacturers and, and very very well off. Uh, my grandmother didn't dress herself until she turned thirteen and had to uh, had to flee Germany. She had to learn how to dress herself. <laughs> so wow. uh, so yeah, so so I started to reconnect with her story, and she fled Germany as a teenager, and uh, her, and, and her whole family perished there, um, other than her. Uh, and they were shipped off to uh, concentration camps across the across the border in France, and um, and uh, never seen again. And so I, I connected with her story, and then became very connected to uh, the state of Israel and and the uh, the contributions that the state of Israel makes to Jews living all around the world. And and in my mind, uh, the only bulwark against the something like. What happened to my grandmother's family happening again was to have a, a Jewish state that was able to, um, you know, protect Jews around the world who are, who are persecuted. And so I, I very much connected with that ideology and those concepts. And so con- the, the, the desire to join the military and to be to be a soldier um, connected with my uh, with my exploration of, of uh, Israel and my Jewish identity and so I decided to go to Israel when I was 16 to join the military.
1: Wow. That, that is, that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, so it was your grandmother's story that, that really kind of uh, made you uh, you got got you more interested in 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 the Jewish faith and the culture, or were you already uh, there? It just fermented it for you.
0: That's a very good question. So I I was always Jewish and Orthodox and raised to believe in the faith, uh, but my my pride in being Jewish and my identity as um, and, and engagement in being Jewish as a link in a, in a long chain of, of Jews really, really started as a result of my exploration of my grandmother's story uh, in my teen years. Um, so I'm not sure if that makes a lot of sense, but I guess I split the the really the religious identity and the faith based identity with the with the Jewish cultural identity, uh, which I which I came to uh, more as a teenager.
1: OK. And so then and this is this is where I, you know, I, I uh, really would tell people that I hope that they'll go to LinkedIn and link in with you and follow you and, and listen to your read your stories and your posts, And that's how I found you. Um, and, you know, this is a great segue for that, because then you come back and you go to, you know, college and law school and. You go to a law firm and you start practicing, you know, uh, M&A law uh, uh, transactions. And at some point during uh, this stay at home, uh, work from home, you realize that you're not necessarily being your full self at work. Right. I don't want to give everything away, but but that's how I found you. And, and you, you you made a post a couple of months ago that now has like thirty five thousand um, uh, folks have reacted to it. Um, and can you tell us about that?
0: I think that you are referring to the post about um, about my Sabbath observance. Is that correct, Marla? Yes,
1: and as a matter yes. of fact, there's sixty five thousand reactions today, um, and it, it it was about you know your son asking you why you weren't wearing your kippa, yeah, um, on on the Zoom, and and it was so it was so poignant.
0: Yeah, I think that for like to really answer that question in more than the 800 words that linkedin allows me to to write and uh merle i would write more uh than 800 words if linkedin allowed me to but for everybody's sake it it keeps me at 800 words (laughs) uh so (laughs) but I think that you have to go back to my first experience entering into the, the non, outside of the non-Jewish community, which was my experience when I started attending high school, uh, where I was one of a few Jews uh, in, my, in my high school. It was a huge high school, thousands, you know, a few thousand people, I think. And uh, I was one of a handful of Jews and the only Orthodox Jew. And on day one, I started wearing, I, I wore my kippah, my yarmulke to school and uh and and i I knew i knew by wearing my kippah that i was different and uh i got a lot of comments on it and not all were positive um i i faced a lot of uh uh, of negative anti-semitism ignorance and i i remember taking the city bus home one day and just and a group of people jumped me and started yeah. punching me and kicking me and, yeah. uh, and, and yelling anti-Jewish statements at me. And, um, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, like, is this worth it to keep my kippah on and to be openly Jewish? Uh, and I was, I was pretty, uh, ferocious, but the, the onslaught was difficult to handle as a young teen. And so I found myself taking my kippah and, and putting it in my pocket when I went ah. out um, out of the home. And as I started to become more connected to my Jewish identity, that, that hiding of it and how I felt inside became more and more incongruous and difficult and, and created friction in me, which lasted for many years. I, I, for many years, didn't wear a kippah outside of the home. Uh, I didn't wear it when I went to college, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins and, um, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember walking through, uh, you know, you know, pr- protests, you know, and, you know, pro pro, uh, you know, anti-Israel protests, which uh, often, um, you know, on many college campuses bordered on anti or, or was overtly anti Um, obviously, Protesting is, is perfectly legal and cool, and uh, I, I, I support it 100%, um, it, it, unless it becomes abusive to, right. to people of faith or, or any people um, of any diversity. So, uh, so then in undergrad, I didn't wear it, and yet I was very proud of being Jewish, but, but didn't feel comfortable wearing my kippah and felt that it, it would cause people to view me differently, from the professors to my classmates, Uh, And and so then in law school as well, I didn't wear my kippah. And when I went to start interviewing, I was told by my mentors and friends, there's absolutely no way that you should be wearing a kippah to interview uh, with big law firms. Like it's too easy to ding you in the interview process. Mm. They have too many applicants. Yes, nobody will ever say that they didn't hire you because of your kippah. However... Um, it's too easy to, to, to reject you if you identify yourself as different and, and observant. So obviously I didn't wear my kippah to interviews and still felt that feeling of incongruity. And, 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 um, and I was openly Jewish and observant, but just didn't feel comfortable having that as, as my, like openly, openly identifying that way. Um, And so this really came to a fore not long ago. And I I still didn't wear my kippah until uh, a couple months ago. Um, And uh, I've been working now as a as a as a lawyer uh, in in an absolutely wonderful, inclusive law firm for for four years. I'm a fifth year associate uh, and, and. um, and I still didn't feel comfortable openly identifying as Jewish, uh, a conversation like this would never have happened a couple of years ago. We, right. I never would have talked about being Jewish. I, I if you pressed me on it, yes, I, I would have said, you know, of course I am, but, uh, I would never be open about it. And then, uh, yeah. And then I, I remember it came to a four and as kids tend to do. They, they bring out your hypocrisy and everything. <laughs> they will be the first to point out when your actions do not match your words. Right. And,
1: From the mouth um, of babes.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I tell him all the time, go put your keep on, you know, be proud of being Jewish, identify, you know, we, we, we are, we are people of values and ethics, and that's something you should be proud of. And, you know, you should hold yourself to a high standard at all times. And then uh, I jump on a zoom call and I pull my keep off and uh, put it on the side of my desk. And uh, I, I got up one day and walked out of my office at home. And he says, you know, that daddy where's your kippah? And I said to him, well, I, you know, I don't wear it when I, when I work. And, and he said, why? And I I didn't have a good answer for him. I, the only answer was, you know, just cowardice. Just, I was just not willing to, I just didn't want to face the negative, any potential negative ramifications of being identified as being Jewish. And, and that's, something i would be embarrassed to communicate to my eight-year-old son that's definitely not a way that i should be living so um right so i expressed that openly on linkedin and i I think as you said uh, sixty-five thousand people identified with it as well and uh i've had an an inflow of messages from people and and the point that i was trying to make was not that jewish people should wear their kippah because that's a personal decision right i don't I don't tell anybody that they should. I didn't wear it for many years. We all have to make personal judgments about the impact on my career. Um, you know, there was a Jewish person in Pakistan who reached out to me and said, should I wear my kibah in Pakistan? And I said, don't wear your kibah <laughs> if it's going to c- hurt your security. If you're right. going to get you know, hurt, don't do it. It's not right. a commandment. It's a custom. So, uh, so obviously it's a personal decision. But... Um, For me, the point was that in the workplace, we should all be able to express what makes us unique and diverse, and nobody should have to put their hair a certain way or change their outfits or hide certain things about themselves. And when we all bring our unique selves to the workplace, our teams are much richer and we thrive and, and we perform better if we are all um, able to, to be ourselves at work, we shouldn't have to put that in a corner when we go to work or, or close it inside of a box when we go to work. And so that was the point. And, and, and I hope that, that, that it has made an impact.
1: Well, it sounds like to me, I mean, you know, here, here, it sounds like to me that, that it has, I mean, I was just so uh, I read it again this morning and I was just so, I mean, you said you were scared and that you didn't have the courage and, you know, those are, are, you know, having, you know, one of the things that you and I have in common is, you know, I went to a very rough high school. Also, I grew up in Compton. My, both my parents were school teachers um, who taught in the Compton school district. So I went to school in the Compton school district and was bullied Um Uh, you know, I, I only never got kicked or anything, but I definitely did have one fight and, you know, and I know that feeling of being frightened, physics, having physical fear, and it does form you, um, as you, as you mature. And, and, and interestingly enough, one of the, the reasons I wanted to go to law school is because I discovered that you could actually fight through words on paper, as opposed to physically, you know, and you know, I know that you. I mean, you went to the military, and you also teach, you know, some form of art, martial arts, and you, you're very um, committed to wrestling. I know. Um, so you and I definitely went in very different directions <laughs> in that respect. But you know, those those experiences really kind of, I I believe, you know lead you to either embrace who you are, you know, you know, be, uh, hide who you are, but, you know, at some point, hopefully we all come back around and decide that it's better to be who you are.
0: Absolutely, Merle. I I couldn't not have said it better. And I think we do share that experience of of growing up in a rough environment and feeling that sense of of insecurity and physical threat. And my children are growing up in a very different environment yes. by design. I I you know since I was a a young a young teen, I said to myself I would raise my children in in a different environment yep. than I was raised. And Me I think you committed to the same yes yes and yeah i definitely said
1: yeah i definitely said i would never put my daughter in a situation where i felt like she would be in physical fear you know there's there's so many other ways you know things can happen to you just walking across the street you know but to knowingly do that um i just couldn't i couldn't do it to her you know i have these conversations that's why i love this podcast i have conversations with people i don't know for some reason, I'm attracted to them. I feel like almost a familial uh, uh, relationship. And I have these conversations and it only grows through the conversation. And that's how I'm feeling about you right now, Ellie.
0: And I feel the same way, moral I think that we have so many shared experiences and perspectives. Um, it's it's really, I think... Um, you know, I was talking to my son about uh, the Mal- Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I actually posted about this a few months back um, in the in the context of how every moment with a child is really an, an educational opportunity. And specifically, dads should embrace their role as being professors to their children and imparting knowledge and um, and, and making them into uh great adults. And it's not just the mom's job. It's not just a school's job, but it's a dad's job. And, and when I got to the first rung, uh, I, I don't know if you know Maslow's hierarchy, but it's this psychological theory that it's, it's, it's a, a pyramid and mm-hmm. each level, you have to achieve each level of the pyramid before moving up higher. And so the, the first level of Maslow's pyramid is um, physical safety. And um, in order to move up higher to the next level, you need to have that physical safety. And if you don't have it, I really think it's it's difficult to um, to develop in in the way that you a child needs to develop and, and just to bring it full circle to why we move to the country uh, living in Baltimore and uh, having to lock our doors you know, at all times, and having our cars broken into, um, I think was um, was you know not. I wouldn't say damaging to the children, but just not the way a child should have to live. And uh, I love the idea of not having to lock our doors at right. our house and leaving the keys in the car. Uh, it's you know, and just feeling that sense of security. Um, I feel like is, is such a great way to grow up. And granted, you know, we have become the people we are because of our challenges. I don't think that we should try to hide them or, or, or brush them under the rug. We have become rich, deep people because of our upbringing and because of the, the challenges and difficulties that we have wrestled with. Uh, so, so there is something to that, and, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have wished it any other way. Um, however, if I can give my children a yep. little bit of an easier path, um, I will do that.
1: Yeah. And there's so many, uh, uh, un- awful things going on right now. It's like, if you can, ooh, if you can protect them, uh, I'm all for protecting them. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your practice and, in, in um, what it's like to be a transactional. I remember when I was a transactional lawyer, I was nine months pregnant and working, you know, Mm -hmm. almost 24 hours a day, which is why I stopped doing it. But, you know, how does that work with your, you know, being observant and how has your firm reacted uh, since you've, um, I I hate to say come out, but uh, since since you've been, you know, vocal about about your faith and culture
0: it's a very I would say i i try to i put it like this big law is demanding and m a is increasingly aggressive and uh demanding on time and private equity M&A is like the pinnacle of aggressive, demanding M&A. So it's on a very tight timeline. It demands your um, absolute attention and, and perfection at all times under under very um, in very high-pressure environments. Uh, I, I guess just to walk back, I know this is a podcast focused on the legal community, and we're both in the legal community, but um, just to describe... Uh, just to elaborate on you working 24 hours while being nine months pregnant, I don't <laughs> think that's, that's not atypical in an m and environment in big law. Uh, the fact is that uh, big, big law is, um, I, I don't say this just because I'm in big law, but it handles the highest profile, most challenging uh, deals um, of, of other law firms. And the demands on lawyers are, are very high. And that's time, it's attention, it's energy, it's dedication. Uh, and, you, and you really have to love it. I think we parted ways here. I absolutely love M&A. Right.
1: I, <laughs>
0: I, I love everything about it. I mean, I don't love every, everything about it, but I love most things about it. Uh, the things I don't love are really the non-M&A aspects of M&A. Um, but I love the deals. I love advising clients on getting difficult deals done. Um, and I love the success of when deals close. And I I just had a deal close yesterday.
1: Oh, congratulations. Um,
0: Thank you. Thank you. Non-public yet may never be public, but, um, (laughs) otherwise I would tell you what it was. Uh, but, um, it, it, it just like the, the feeling of success when you, uh, negotiate and close a good deal and get a satisfactory result for your client is just um, to me an incredible feeling. I also I love the collaboration of M and A. It's less of uh, less of a fight um, and and more and less of a zero sum proposition than I think litigation because both parties are supposed to walk away um, with with uh, you know, happy. Although I guess in the case of Elon Musk and Twitter, yeah, which I, right. I, I won't talk about, <laughs> but um, I guess in that case, both parties have not walked away happy. Um, but I think that's the exception rather than the rule. But, um, but to your question about how I have found um, the time, the time demands of M and and how I balance that with my the roles that I spoke about at the top of the podcast of being a, a dad and a husband and uh, taking care of my chickens. <laughs> I, I, It's a challenge. It is really a challenge and one that I'm still working on. I, I am still working on it because there are times that m is all encompassing. And uh, in those times, I try very hard to prioritize prioritize my, my wife and my family. And, and I don't necessarily do that by engaging in with them for long periods of time, because time is not something I have mm-hmm. um, during those periods of time. But I do try to engage deeply with them for very short periods of time. And I do try all the time to make them feel like priority. So okay. that means when I'm at home and in my office and my four-year-old walks in, I will stop everything I'm doing. Doesn't matter how high pressure or stressed I am at that time and engage with her. And she knows that I can't engage with her for very long, but I will engage with her directly and deeply and, and focus on her. And I do the same with my wife and, and uh, the other kids. Um, and, and they know I, that I guess this is a different topic, but they know, they know, and I think they feel supportive of what I'm doing. They know how much it means to me and they, and I share with them what I'm doing and, and, and and the challenges I'm facing. And I talk to them openly sometimes about the difficulties and about the successes. And I I feel like they are under the tent with me and they share, you know, they're, they're in the boat rowing in the same direction. Um, So that helps me i cannot function as a human if i'm not deeply engaged with my family uh at the same time as as i'm succeeding at work i just can't if i feel distant from my family then my brain is not functioning at the capacity it needs to function i make mistakes at work um don't tell anyone uh but i (laughs) you
1: just told a lot of people
0: (laughs) uh, (laughs) Well, we all make mistakes nobody's perfect ellie I admit it. I admit it. Um, And, uh, but, so, so that's, that is what I do um, to maintain uh, both my deep connection with my work, which I care a lot about, and my connection with my family that I care um, at least as much, if not more about. I think there was a final question as well. Yeah, so, yeah,
1: so the question, yeah, about, um, you know, a lot of people and the, you know, you know, a lot of us uh, can't uh, keep it from folks how we're different, right? I mean, you just have to look at me and you know uh, that I'm I'm Black, I'm a woman. Um, you only have to listen to me talk for a little while and know that, you know, I am authentically me. Um, and you either, you know, and so I can't, I cannot hide that at all. Um you you know have a different situation and you you've kind of you've decided um to to not uh keep that keep it from people and i i'm just wondering how was that received at the firm and what has the result of that been
0: yes and i think that um you know Credit goes to you, Merle, for really em- embracing your diversity and your uniquenesses and everyone else who tries to do that. I, I really, it takes a lot of courage. It, it takes a lot of tenacity and um, and it ought to be recognized when when it's done. And so, Merle, I- I'm recognizing you for doing that. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's amazing. And-, and-, and I've since learned about covering and how people, even with diversities that show, can still try to cover and try to be less unique. And, yes. um, and, and I don't think that's the way to go. Um, uh, I, since coming out, since you, uh, since you <laughs> used the term coming out, <laughs> since coming out as somebody who really values being close to my family in big law and, um, and somebody who values my faith and being Jewish and observing the Sabbath, uh, i have received overwhelmingly positive feedback from people at my firm people outside of my firm uh the, the the firm my firm i think is a very unique place that really uh not only talks about dedicating efforts to diversities and accepting people for who they are but but also takes concrete actions to do so and one example of that was when I talked about observing the, the Sabbath. And this was a post um, uh, that I did, uh, uh, I don't know, four or five months ago um, that uh, I, I didn't, um, that, that was also very well received. And um, I, I talked about how I observed the Sabbath and how difficult that is in m and especially mm-hmm. in private equity m and because uh, the deals don't stop from Friday night to Saturday night. Um, and I'm at the point in, in my career that I am taking leadership on deals and, and I am uh, the point person on deals. And sometimes I know more about the deal than other people um, on, on the deal team as the as sometimes the most senior associate on, on an M&A deal. And so... It presents a lot of challenges and I spoke and I did and I've always kind of hid that and beat around the bush and apologized for going offline for Sabbath and um, and really kind of uh, tried to hide it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So, and so the post a little while back was about how I really do embrace this as, as the healthiest way to be. And I wish that other people also had 25 hours to (laughs) turn their phone off and their, and stop the emails and the pinging and engage with, um, who they are as a person, not just who they are as, as a work person. Um, and so after I wrote about that publicly, my firm, um, empowered me to, to create the first, uh, what I think is the first, uh, Sabbath observant affinity group, um, wow. in, in a big law firm in the U S. Um, and we did that under the diversity department. We, we have an absolutely incredible diversity department, um, that, uh, a, a, that empowered us to create this affinity group. And, um, and we had our first meeting and partners who had been at the firm for many, many years, uh, talked about how meaningful it was to be able to be open about their Sabbath observance and how this is the first time in their career they've really felt fully accepted um, for their Sabbath observance. So I, I, I'm at Gibson Dunn because I am absolutely um, the biggest fan of the firm. Um, the leadership is incredibly supportive. The partnerships are supportive. My colleagues are supportive. And um, I, I really don't... don't uh, I think it's just a fantastic environment to, to really be yourself while, while succeeding at a, at a very high level. And obviously the, the, the corporate department at Gibson Don, as well as the litigation department, um, speaks for the, for itself as dealing with, um, very high level, um, you know, very, very intricate high level, high, high profile deals. Um, so, so I'm very fortunate to be at, at such a place
1: that's awesome. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're almost out of time. I, I do want to ask you one last question. And I, I wrote down a quote here, um, that, uh, is from one of your posts and, and you said, wear it, embrace it, ex- express it for you, if not for you, uh, for your colleagues. And, you know, I just, I can't applaud that, um, Enough, Um, and so I want to ask you: What other words of encouragement or advice do you have for folks, whether they're you know uh, uh, Jewish or otherwise, about embracing your authentic self at you know at work um, and and otherwise? Well,
0: thank you so much, Merle. I I have recently understood how powerful it is for us each as individuals to speak out and how much that empowers others. the, The only advice I would give to somebody who really wants to feel their full, comfortable, genuine self at work is to just take that first step. Think about what it is that we are hiding about ourselves when we go to work and start expressing that. You know, start by expressing it in, you know, little ways. Start by expressing it to people you trust. And then you'll see that it will snowball into one day. You will feel like much more of your true self at at work. And I think the impact we have on others and the impact that others have on others, it cannot be underestimated. Mm -hmm. I, you know, us, um, you know, Jewish people have uh, have something that we're raised f- with from birth. And it, it's sort of at, a, at the tip of our tongue at, at any moment, which is that we're meant to be a light unto the nations. We're meant to be a moral compass and we're meant to impact the world in a positive way. And I don't think just Jews are tasked with that. I think everybody can do that. But I do think that in small ways, this, this spreading effect of, being able to express yourself, and then others being able to express their self, will lead to um, to the to the betterment of the world, which we call uh, tikkun olam, which is which is the the, the um, you know achieving a, a much more healthy environment for us all to live in.
1: I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Ellie. I mean, I really i I need an invitation to the farm. <laughs>
0: Merle, you are absolutely welcome and we would love to have you for a Shabbat dinner or Shabbat lunch at the farm. Um, And you're, you're welcome anytime. I think you'll be, you'll find peace and solace here.
1: Oh, I'm always searching for peace and joy. That's, that's what, that's what I'm searching for. Well, thank you, Ellie, for being here to BS with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Until the next episode, remember that everybody is different. And different is good. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.